We love you, Lord, and we thank you for uh, the gift of your Son, the work on the cross. Uh, we thank you for saving faith and the Spirit that sanctifies us. And Lord, as we turn again to Romans today, we ask that your Spirit would illuminate and teach us uh, what you would have us learn uh, from its pages. And Lord, we just thank you and we praise you. And we pray this in and through your Son, Jesus' name. Amen. If you have your Bibles, uh, I invite you to get them on out. Turn to the book of Romans, chapter 14. We're going to look at the first half, verses 1 to 12 uh, today. Romans 14, 1 through 12. As far as the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions one person believes he may eat anything, while the weak person eats only vegetables. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains, and let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats. For God has welcomed him. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls, and he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. One person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. The one who observes the day observes it in honor of the Lord. The one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord, since he gives thanks to God. While the one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. For none of us lives to himself. And none of us dies to himself. For if we live, we live in the Lord, to the Lord. And if we die, we die to the Lord. So then, whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. For to this end Christ died and lived again, that he might be Lord both of the dead and of the living. Why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or you, why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God. So then each of us will give an account of himself. O Lord, you have given us your word for a light to shine upon our path. Grant us so to meditate on that word and to follow its teaching, that we may find it in the light that shines more and more until the perfect, the perfect day. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. So we're, con we're continuing in Paul's application section of the book of Romans. Uh, I've, I've said it a number of times, and I'm sure I'll say it again. The first 11 chapters of Romans... Uh, is Paul's theological head knowledge of the gospel. What is the gospel? How, how should we think of the gospel? What does it mean that the gospel is a part of my life? What is, what is my faith even doing all this kind of stuff? All this head knowledge of the gospel in Romans 12 to 16 is largely Paul's uh, treaty on now what? Now that I know what the gospel is in my mind, what is the... What are the ramifications of the gospel? What should I 
be doing because of the gospel, or how does the gospel affect and change my life? Verse 12, or chapter 12, verse 2 and 3. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of my mind, of the of your mind, that you that by testing you may discern what is the will of God and what is good and acceptable and perfect. This is what we're looking at here. And so everything that we see in these last chapters is always, always in response to the knowledge of the gospel. To knowing that we were once dead in sin and are now alive in Christ through the precious blood of our Savior Jesus Christ, who freely shed it on behalf of us as a propitiation, as a sacrifice, as a, as a pleasing offering to God the Father for us, it's a free gift and we are justified by our faith and we are set right in God's eyes. And now, through the work of the Spirit, are being sanctified, being changed, being molded, transformed into the image of the Son, Jesus. I've been reading through a, a, a commentary, a number of commentaries, but one in particular is by this uh, gentleman, Pastor uh, R. Ken Hughes. And he describes chapters... 12, 13, and 14 as, as describing love, right? And that's really, I think, a very accurate description of what, uh, what our response to the gospel actually is. It's a manifestation of God's love in our life. In chapter 12, uh, we learn that God, or that the nature of love, excuse me, the nature of love is to serve. We serve one another. We, we, uh, we serve one another in love. Maybe verse or chapter 13, we find that love must be submissive. We submit to governing authorities that are in God's name. We submit to the laws and the rules and the in the guidance of God in our lives through his commandments and loving our neighbor. Now, in chapter 14, we find that love is patient. Now, Pastor Hughes, he says love is patient and he uses a scary word that was not scary when he wrote, love is patient and tolerant. Tolerant is now a scary word in our culture. I think many of us would agree with that. And, and, I, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say that in the same way. The chapter 14 teaches us love is patient and tolerant, but I'm going to put a little asterisk on that that we'll come back to in a minute. Love is patient and tolerant. The first thing that we need to do to understand chapter 14 is know who Paul's talking about. Who is, he, who is he speaking about? He gives us kind of two groups. Group A is the weak. Okay? The weak and group B are not the weak. We assume then the strong. The weak in verses 1 to 4 are weak because of their consumption of a particular type of food. The strong or the opposite of the weak uh, are those who eat basically the opposite. In the second part, in verses 5 to 6, 5 and 6, the weak and the strong kind of loses its, its uh, reality or loses its kind of connection to what's going on. But the, the first group of people are people who, who uh, esteem one particular day as important and others who uh, esteem all the days as important alike. And those are kind of our two groups, the weak and the strong. 
In 1 Corinthians chapter 8, Paul talks about meat sacrificed to idols. And in, in that particular chapter, unlike our chapter today, Paul actually takes a side. We kind of can assume that Paul is taking a side when he says that some are weak in faith. And then we can compare, compare notes with Romans and 1 Corinthians. And we can kind of see that maybe Paul's talking about the same, the same thing. But in Corinthians, he actually makes it a stated point. He talks about meat sacrifice idols in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 8. He says, now concerning food offered to idols, we know that all, that we know that all of us possess knowledge. This knowledge puffs up, and, but love builds up. And so essentially what Paul is going to talk about in chapter 8 is he's going to talk about this idea of, of eating meat. Now this is different from the Old Testament food codes, the Old Testament food laws. In the Old Testament, there are, then there are what we call cleanliness laws that, that restrict certain types of foods that we could eat or that the Jewish people could eat. So you could... There was no restrictions on if you could eat a sheep or a lamb or even even beef. But you were not supposed to eat pigs and horses and, and a few other things. A couple, couple types of birds. Birds of uh, scavenger birds and things like that. You're not supposed to eat those. But it, but in the Old Testament law, those are not those are not sins that are being committed. Those are cleanliness laws. There is a there is a difference between a moral law and a cleanliness law and then there's also the civil law right if i if i murder somebody yeah that's a sin but there's also punishment within the within the community that is affected or that, that then is affected on me right and so there's a differentiation but in the old testament law you could eat meat but just some of them are restricted in corinth and subsequently rome these these laws were not what paul was talking about if you wanted to eat meat in basically any major city outside of Jerusalem, any major city outside of Jerusalem, you had to buy it unless you were a, a shepherd, which was not a very common job, but unless you were a shepherd, that's a different story altogether. But the normal person, the normal average citizen, if you wanted to buy meat, if you wanted to eat meat, you would go to the market. And the market was intimately and permanently and completely tied to the temple or temples of the city. So if you wanted to eat meat, you went to the you went to the temple where the market was. And what would happen is they would take their sac their animals and they'd take it to the temple and they would make a sacrifice. They would sacrifice to the whatever gods and they would say, you know, I want my crops to grow, here is a sacrifice, or I want I want to have a child, so here is a sacrifice, give me what I want, kind of a, a payment system. These sacrifices look and sound similar to what we see in the Old Testament law, but the difference is the the place of response. Right? We in the Old Testament, the Israelites would respond with sacrifices, whereas everywhere else it was a there was a sacrifice to make response or to create response. Anyway, they would make these sacrifices. They would offer up, uh, you know, a sweet aroma or blood or even a, a burnt offering, which is essentially cook the meat, make it smell real nice, give it to the, to the god to eat or consume. But they didn't inevitably eat everything, and so then they would take the rest out into the market, and they would sell it, and then they would take the money that they sold it for, give part of it to the temple, 
completely different system. There's no Bueller's, there's no Walmart, there's no Aldi's. You don't just go and buy meat that's just been slaughtered for your consumption. And so the people in Corinth, and, and again, the people in Rome, they kind of had this, this dilemma. Well, I'm not going into the temple to make a sacrifice, but by buying a, this meat, I'm giving some money to the temple, but I'm also, am I in some way worshiping these gods? What Paul teaches in 1 Corinthians is he says, no. No, that's not, that's not actually true. He says in verse 4 of chapter 8 of 1 Corinthians, therefore... As to eating of the food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence and that there is no God but one, meaning there's only Yahweh. He goes on to say, therefore, you can eat it. The reality of your, of your faith in Christ has freed you from this kind of bondage to this extra law. Now, this is, this is where things get maybe a little bit tricky for us today. The first reality is that none of us are going to any temples to buy meat, sacrifice to idols. And also, we don't, in the second half here, we also don't talk about how many days a week should we meet together to worship. I mean, not, I don't think anybody in this room has ever heard anybody say, you should come to church every single morning and worship God like we do today. Now, in my opinion, it'd be fantastic. But there's practical realization there. Setting that aside, though, we have to start asking the question, is this about sin or something else? Because what Paul is about to tell us is that we should be tolerant of people's views on what is right and wrong to do. Now, it doesn't take much thought to realize that that statement can get taken to an extreme. Turn on the news. It doesn't take long to realize that, that if, if license is given to do whatever you want, you're going to do whatever you want. Right? Our, our nature is, in fact, to sin. Our fallen and broken nature, once Adam and Eve ate the fruit, we all now always will revert to sin if given the option. So is that what Paul's saying? I think the answer is a resounding no. Notice in verse 1 he says to, to not quarrel over opinions. So what's the difference between an opinion and truth? Well, I think the difference between an opinion and truth is what I mentioned earlier. Is it a moral law? Or is it a civil law? Or is it a cleanliness law? Or is it found in Scripture anywhere? Does, does the Bible explicitly teach us something? Because I think if the Bible explicitly tells us, thou shalt not murder, and there's actually no place in Scripture that, that, that clarifies and says, oh, now this law is no longer applicable to Christians we're still under that truth. That is still sin to take the life of somebody else. There is, there is plainness in Scripture on moral laws. And in fact, every single New Testament writer, and, and I challenge anybody to, to, to prove me wrong on this, every single New Testament writer addresses this topic. Don't sin. 
And when they're talking about sin, they're saying, don't, don't, don't give in to moral failings. But there's also a, a reality that, that I think every single New Testament writer also calls us believers to hold each other or fellow believers accountable to those standards. So if you're a believer and you're in a part of a community of believers, it's actually not just our, not just our right, but our responsibility when we see sin in somebody else's life to confront sin. Now, we're told again and again to confront it in love, confront it in compassion, in tenderness. We're not to lord it over each other and, and crush each other by our, our illumination of that sin, but we're all called to holding each other accountable. So what exactly is Paul talking about? Again, it's really hard to make this connection between meat sacrifice idols and what day of the week should we worship on because these are not, these are not in our face issues anymore. But I'm pretty confident that if you grew up in, in church at, at any point, if you were a part of a church at any point, you, you know issues that fit into this mold. Things like, is it, is it okay if I play with playing cards? Right? When playing cards first kind of came to prominence, they were entirely... Uh, it, they entirely were involved in gambling, poker and other games of chance. You can see that I'm well-knowledged in that area. Poker, that's all I had, top of my brain. But it's okay if, if we take gambling, which I think gambling is fairly easy to see in Scripture, but if we take gambling out of the equation, our our cards okay? And for a long time, in many in many church denominations and church groups, playing cards were not okay. But I, but I, again, I challenge you to find any single passage of scripture that condemns a deck of fifty-two plastic or paper-ish cards, and don't don't play with those. Don't enjoy a game of euchre with your father-in-law. I don't really ever enjoy playing Yuku with Tom. He's always beating me. It's not very nice. What about smoking? Oh, smoking's bad, right? Most of us live in the north. And by north, I mean America. If you go to the south, actually, if you go past the Mason-Dixon line, there is an immediate shift from northern people say smoking is bad and sinful. It's, it's a temple of God. And, and, and you go to the south, they're like, no, it's not bad in Rome. It's actually a, a major product in our in our uh, economy. And if you take away taco, use, tobacco use, excuse me, and and it, and all sorts of it's gonna it's gonna crumble our economy. There's value to it. it. It gives me it gives me pleasure to smoke a cigar, or a cigarette, or a cigar. And there's are they sinners? Again, I I pose the question: Can anybody find in Scripture a place that says no smoking tobacco, alcohol? Theater, I say theater because that's kind of an older one. Most people don't call it a theater. They call it, I guess, movie theater, cinema. Going to the going to the plays and watching Shakespeare or something like that. That was, no, that's not good. Don't do that because there's potential for sin there. For sports, fill in the blank. Many of us know a lot of different examples that we could give. 
These are what Paul is talking about. Things that, that while at their base or at their core are not found explicitly in Scripture, but maybe perhaps have some sense in Scripture. Now, maybe I can make an argument that smoking a cigarette is sinful because it's the temple of God, but there's no... No, there's nothing explicit, so, so what do we do? And even this conversation, what is actually right and wrong, is, is one of those things that could be differing an opinion from believer to believer. What do we do? What is this? What is Paul calling us to? I think Paul can, Paul can say these things because Paul, has, Paul is, is working under this assumption that you care a great deal about knowing what God says. Right? Paul, Paul assumes that if you are a believer, if you have been, if you have been bought with the, by the blood of Christ, you are going to care deeply about what he calls you to. And so therefore, it really doesn't end up being a question of, is this sin or not? Because it's, it's very plain in the scripture what is sin and what is not. But it's these additional things. It's, it's the gospel plus. These are the things that Paul is addressing. So now what does he say to do with them? I think Paul implies that if we live in liberty, we are strong. Meaning, that we can, we can be a part of things that could potentially draw us to sin, but are not drawn to sin. I can, I can go and buy a piece of meat that's been sacrificed to an idol and know that that idol is not real. But somebody else, as we see in 1 Corinthians, they might. They might go and they might feel a, a sense of, I'm, I'm participating in pagan worship. And actually what Paul says is, is don't do it if you feel convicted. It's sin then, if you feel convicted and do it anyway. But notice, Paul says absolutely nothing about fixing anybody's opinion. He says, if you're the strong one, fix the other person, and if you're the weak one, listen. No, he doesn't say that. He says, he says if you're weak, you're weak. If you're strong, you're strong. And in places that are not sin, we should be, again, to use a scary word, tolerant. And I think more importantly, patient. Because the spirit that lives in me, who, who might know the freedom that I have, lives in the person who might not know that spirit. It's not my responsibility. It's the spirit's. So here's what he says. Let no one... Who eats, verse 3, despise the one who abstains. And let no one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats. Why? For God has welcomed him. Now we're all in different places in our spiritual walk in life, right? But we're all justified by the blood of Christ. Those of us who have been called into his arms, we are justified by the blood of Christ. We have been welcomed into the arms of God through the work of Jesus Christ, and so therefore, those of us who might think differently should not cast judgment. Let 
Paul says in verse 4, who are you? Which is probably one of the most, I think, most painful things that Paul says on a regular basis. Who on earth do you think you are? I think we would all do better if we thought more of this statement when looking at fellow brothers and sisters in Christ Jesus. Who am I to think that I'm better? I think many of us, that's our nature. I'm right, you're wrong. I said, was it last week when I'm driving down the road? How many times do I think, if everybody drove like me, we'd all be better off. Isn't that a silly assumption that I'm somehow better than everybody else on the road? Isn't it a silly assumption? Isn't it the same silly assumption to think that I'm somehow more enlightened than all of you? Shouldn't we be more compassionate or patient? It's before his own master that he stands or falls. He will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. And then he goes on. One person esteems, in verse 5, one day is better than another, while another esteems all days alike. I think actually part of this comes from what Wes read for communion. The earliest church met every single day to worship God. In fact, the very first churches sold everything that they had and just lived together off of that income, off of that money, not income. It's not, not income. They thought, okay, Jesus is coming back like this week. And then the week passed and they went, well, maybe this week. And then eventually they said, well, probably should go back to work. But they met every day. Right? At first, they met, they would get up in the morning before the sun would rise and they would come, go to somebody's house and they would sing songs and praises to God every single morning. They'd go off to work, they'd work their day's job, they'd go and they'd buy their bread for the day and they'd come back and they'd worship together, they'd have, they'd have communion together. It was just this beautiful every single day of the week, every, every day God is worthy of our praise. And isn't he? But in the, eventually the realities of life set in and, and and so the question starts going, isn't perhaps we should be like the Jews that we have come from? Meet maybe on one day a week and worship God and it be a special day, a day that we set aside for just this one task and, and give our, our whole attention to Him. Now, isn't that great too? And again, I'll, I, and, and, and this is a really dangerous thing for a pastor to say on Sunday at church, but I... I I'll ask you again, look to Scripture to find a place that says you have to meet and worship God on Sundays. You're never going to find that in Scripture. Perhaps you can twist a few passages and say we're supposed to meet on, on the Sabbath day. But the Sabbath day, which is Saturday, by the way, it's not the same as Sunday, which is the Lord's day. It's different. So what? who's right? <laughs> it's not a moral issue. So we should, like meat sacrificed idols, or those who eat meat and those who just eat vegetables, we should be patient. Knowing what? Knowing that the reasons why we do these things are not for our own selfish gain, but for the, are for the glory and the honor of our God. Verse 6. Each one should be fully convinced in verse 5. Each one can be fully convinced in our own mind. Verse 6. The one who observes the day observes it in honor of the Lord. 
the single day. The one person who comes just on the Lord's day and says, this is the special day. That it's, 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 this is my day to devote all myself to God and Him alone. And the one who eats does the same thing. I'm going to devote this meal to the Lord God because isn't it wonderful? Isn't a nice, juicy steak awesome? How many of you ever think about that steak that you're eating and think about the flavors and the tastiness of it and go, isn't God good? Let me challenge you if that's not what you're thinking because it looks like I'm the only one who's ever done that. Let me challenge you to sanctify your meal and honor God in the eating of the food that he has so richly blessed with delicious flavors. I feel like I'm alone up here. What's going on? <laughs> Thank you, Max. No, seriously, think about it for just a, just a minute. Just think about just think about why do we have flavor? Why is has God given us many taste buds in our mind? Because He wants to He wants to show us His love and compassion for. And we can we can take this day. And we can, this is so great, God. You are good. And those who don't eat meat, it's not me, but there are people in this room who don't eat meat, and that's, that's perfectly fine. Do the same thing in honor of the Lord. As you eat those vegetables and the things that you put in them to make taste. And again, I'm sorry, I don't, I, I'm trying not to be offensive. I'm trying not to be offensive, but I know that there are many people who eat things that I don't really like that are delicious to them. Honor the Lord through it. And I think it's only really through this that it makes sense to be compassionate, to be patient and tolerant with other people who are around us. Because it's, it's the life that they're living in honor of God. And this is an assumption that Paul is making. You, if, you are, if you are bought with the blood of Christ, you're going to do all things to glorify Him. And then he goes into this perhaps strange tangent. Verse 7 4. None of us lives to himself, and none of us dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord, and if we die, we die to the Lord. So then, whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. For it is this end, to this for, for to this end Christ died and lived again, that that he might be Lord both of the dead and of the living. That doesn't seem to fit with meat sacrifice or meat and and vegetables, and what day of the week should I worship God? And then all of a sudden, who's dying? I think what Paul just did is he went, he went, you know what is really silly? How petty you are. Sometimes we need to take the focus off of our, our silliness and put the focus on what Christ has really done for us. We have been bought Blood of Jesus. Isn't that so much more important than anything we could add to it? Somebody? Yes? Christ is not just He's not just this past thing that we look at and say, yeah, we but we all agree with that. But we all feel that way. No, this is something that changes everything about who we are. Every moment of our day is 
is changed and sanctified by the blood of Christ until the day that we die and are glorified. So why do you pass judgment on your brother? If this is true, why do you pass? Or, or you, why do you despise your brother? Why are you so foolish as to be broken and disunified because of petty things? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God, as for it is written, As I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, and every tongue shall confess to God. So to each, so then each of us will give an account of himself to God. Notice it's an account of himself to God. We should be convinced in our own minds of what we believe, and we should live like we know that this is right. And we should trust that God's doing the same thing in others' lives who are around us as they seek the Lord as best they can. And next week we're going to talk about perhaps the conversations that we can have. But this week we stand on this one simple truth. God's, God's love for us is patient. Right? I can't wait to get to heaven for God to show me all the things that I was wrong about. God's love for us is patient. So should our love be for others. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord God, you are so wonderful. As we think about the many areas of our lives that we are, are, are foolish in and how many times we have gotten up on our high horse and looked down upon those who are around us. Lord, let us be humbled by the goodness of your son's work. Let us be transformed, not, not so that we can all have the same quote-unquote right, but that we can all be bought by the precious and holy blood of our Savior Jesus Christ. Let that be what, that, let that be what holds us together. Lord, and in the words of Rupertus many years ago, in essentials, unity. In non-essentials, liberty but in all things, unconditional love. In all things, unconditional love. For it's in your precious and holy Son, whose love is our example, that we pray.